You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. Played 11.30 hockey game last night, so I'm not in the greatest of spirits right now. A little sleepy still, but other than that, I'm okay. I'm going to rally. I'm going to do it. Ended in a tie, I heard. 3-3 tie. A gripping 3-3 tie. I saw breaking news come across the local uh, sports feed that your co-rec hockey game last yeah. night ended in a tie. They they preempt the local news to tell you that? Mm-hmm. Yes, they broke into my uh, my nightly screening of old Seinfeld reruns to let me know that that yeah. happened. Yeah, and I can imagine you leaping to your feet. Just getting I, caught up in the moment. I, I did score a goal, though. I was just going to say, I don't suppose anything cool happened, and if it did, I suppose you won't tell us about Since it. Since you asked, I scored a goal, uh, the second straight game in a row that I've scored a goal, and I now, and this tells you something about kind of the state of the team, I am now the leading scorer on my team. It which... surprises me that the such statistics are even kept, <laughs> and I might ask who all is keeping them. Right Maybe up, just you. Right up here, my man. Keeping them in the old mind computer? We don't score a whole lot of goals, so it's really not that difficult to keep track of. I'll tell you that. That's good. I, I don't even have to ask anymore. Four goals this season, come, Jed. Come to the recording of our Mixed Martial Arts podcast uh, with your hockey stories preloaded and ready to go. Four goals. I mean, we'll just Season's have, not even over. We'll just have a recurring feature on the show, like Ben's Hockey Minute. And you know, I could barely ice skate when this damn thing started, so if I continue to improve at this current rate, I will be the greatest hockey player who ever lived sometime in early 2019. The Puck Bag with Ben Folks. Hey! This week's Co-Main Event Podcast. You never get tired of that. Once again, this week's episode of the CME is brought to you by the Men's Grooming Geniuses at Fulton & Rourke. If you've listened to the podcast much, you've heard us talk about Fulton & Rourke quite a bit. Uh, they're the originators of the shave cream that GQ magazine recently called the best on the market. If you're a man or there's a man in your life you think deserves the absolute best stuff, we recommend you go online and check out the full gamut of Fulton and Rourke products. That's right, Chad. You can get the long-lasting bar soap formulated with eucalyptus, sage, and black spruce. And, of course, their go-anywhere solid colognes. And now you can get all of those things and lots more delivered to your house on the regular. What manner of sorcery is this, you ask? Why, it's Fulton & Rourke's new subscription service, allowing you to select which products you want and how often you want them delivered. Fulton & Rourke subscribers save money on every order, and like our own Breakfast of Champions newsletter, it's easy to cancel anytime. If that sounds like something you might be interested in, just go to FultonAndRourke.com and use the coupon code RITUAL to save an an extra 10% off your first subscription ship the shipment. It's a tongue twister. Kind there of at fell the apart end. there. There at the Enter end. the coupon code ritual to save an extra ten percent off your first subscription shipment. I can see the concentration on your face. See, that's the thing. If you become an advertiser on the Co Main Event podcast, chances are you get your shit read twice because I'm gonna fuck it up the first time. It's a that's a value right that's there. That's how we make it yeah. worth your while. We got music again this week from our friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for providing the songs. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out on facebook.com slash The Fifth Element. 
Twitter at the Fifth Element or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash the Fifth Element Official. That's the word though with an A and the number five. Of course it is. In Fifth Element. People know. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, was UFC 208 kind of a backbreaker? Are even hardcore fans going to start tuning out if this shit stays this bad? Is the UFC in big fucking trouble? And in round number two, so Anderson Silva is just going to get old out here right in front of our very eyes. Probably going to grow a wispy white beard, get a gnarly wooden walking stick, start stooping to pick up pennies off the sidewalk while he walks to the diner to get a cup of soup and a half a tuna sandwich. I guess so. Ain't nobody going to tell him he can't. And in round number three, the best fight of this weekend is Fedor versus Mitrione. Huh. All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me, and Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jimmy Wong. He writes, hot damn, fellas. How about that new women's featherweight champion? Not only is GDR an undefeated kickboxing champion, but also a fifth Dan black belt in Dundasso fighting system, too. Seriously, though, do you think people are freaking out a little bit too much over those late punches? Yeah, she socked Holly home pretty hard the first time, but in the second incident, those punches didn't even connect. No doubt it's not a good look, but do you think Rogan at all and some of the post-fight criticisms have been a bit overboard? Okay, I mean, I kind of see the point here, but I think because the first time she hit after the bell was so significant and that she got a warning and it was clearly like, hey, you can't do that, and yet we're obviously not going to stop you or punish you in any way because this is mixed fucking martial arts and we don't do that. Um, And then when she goes out and does it again in the very next round, and yeah, they didn't land, but she was trying to make them land. It wasn't like she purposely missed those punches that she threw. She threw like two after the horn uh, in the next round. Um, And so, yeah, it's just, you're especially when you're at that point where people are still trying to decide how they feel about you, I think that in conjunction with the, uh, you know, at least debatable decision, um, a lot of people came away going, I am not a super huge mega fan of Jermaine Duran to me right now. Yeah, this was uh, like a weird and unexpected heel turn kind of for Jermaine Duran to me of kind of all the way around uh, because her post-fight interview didn't necessarily ingratiate herself with observers either just because she, uh, I don't know, she did, took kind of like a, yeah, I came in here and I kicked ass. I kicked everybody's ass type uh, approach to that interview. Uh, and I think as as it, pertains to the fouls uh not only are we doing the thing that we like to do in this sport where we say well if your illegal strike didn't land then cool we're good with it which is like not how rules work right or not how rules should work in sports but also and like as you spoke to this uh i felt like the first time she did it was egregious enough that they should have stepped in and taken a point because it i mean it was late. That was real late after the bell. And I know that there's been some confusion about uh, what the official end of the round is, whether or not it's the horn, whether it's the ref stepping in. I don't know, man. That that just seemed real. And even though it didn't look like egregiously dirty, it didn't necessarily look like Jermaine Durandamy was like, you know what? I'm going to punch Holly Holm in the face after the bell. It was still really, really late. And now that we know you can go out and do that and not get a point taken away... Well, the emailer is correct. I'm going to write a new section of the Dundasso fight manual about that because 
fuck, man, at this point, you might as well go out there, poke somebody in the eye, kick them in the nuts, and then hit them after the bell. Yeah. If I'm, ain't shit going to happen. I'm wondering, if is there a way to sneak in a punch before the bell? Can you can you do that? Because that seems like the final frontier in Dundasso. If we can figure that one out, man, you'll, you'll be unstoppable. And I think the thing is people get confused a little bit on that rule because if you read the rule as it's written, it does not say keep throwing punches until the referee throws his body in between you. It says when the horn sounds, that's the end of the round. You're not supposed to be throwing punches after that. That's the whole point of the, having the horn that we can all hear uh, throughout the arena. Um they, it's like they get it confused with the rule, like, okay, you keep punching them until the referee pulls you off for, like, a TKO stoppage. Like, yeah, that's you're supposed to fight until the referee intervenes. You are not just supposed to stand there throwing blows, throwing them bungalows, until the referee physically stops you. That will get you in trouble, or at least it, it ought to, Yeah, technically, under the rules. Uh, since we're not going to do a round about this this week, Ben, what in in the world are we to make of Holly Holm at this point? Like... I thought this was a close fight uh, on Saturday night. Even when people on Twitter were were coming out saying they had both the first two rounds for Jermaine Durand and me, uh, I think you had a really one sided call from the broadcast team, which which happens sometimes. I was watching those rounds, not necessarily scoring them for myself because I I have kind of gotten away from that because I think it's a fool's errand. But like trying to figure out who the ringside judges would score them for, uh, and I was thinking to myself, man, if you told me that. Holly Holm had either won both of those first two rounds or one of the two first rounds, according to two of the three ringside judges. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and yet, you know, she comes out and has this like another one of these kind of tepid performances that result in a close decision and she loses it, which is her third straight loss in the UFC. Uh, and at this point is really making that victory over Ronda Rousey look like it's something that had occurred on an island. Right? Like a magical island where uh, great things happen for Holly Holm, I guess. Uh, but yeah, man, like w- w- what? what is your conceptualization of her as an athlete at this point or as a, a competitor? It's tough to tell. I mean, we talked beforehand about wh- how we didn't know which Holly Holm was going to show up. And the thing I'll give her some credit for in this fight is that she made adjustments as the fight went on. Because you could see in those early rounds where, you know, she's just circling around she's out on the edge and every time she tries to come forward and really come at Durand to me she ends up eating a hard shot uh and obviously she doesn't want to just keep doing that over and over again and so she went to the clinch game and just tried to you know either take her down or suffocate her up against the fence and I guess you can say that you feel like you're winning rounds doing that but I also think it's a great way to go out there and, and at least feel like you got screwed out of a decision because if the other person lands, you know, two or three good hard stinging shots and then what you do is kind of halt everybody up against the halt the, the action up against the fence, you can't exactly expect the referees or the judges every single time to be like, okay, three minutes of that uh, cancels out three good uh, shots landed. So, I mean... For how the fight was going, I guess it was a good decision to to switch it up that way and yet she's not a good enough wrestler to really completely change gears and take over a fight that way. Uh, and so, I, I mean, part of me wonders, well, maybe she'll get there. May, you know, she's still got some time. Maybe she'll eventually get to that point where she, she can do that. She does seem like a, a gifted natural athlete. Um, and then another part of me just thinks, you know, she, at this point, doesn't seem like she's the terrifying kickboxer that we thought she was at some points, or the you know the terrifying boxer who who could still kick you in the neck when she had to. 
Um, she's not good enough to beat the people who are real good kickboxers at that game. She's not good enough to out-wrestle the, the, the other people. So where does that leave her? I don't know. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, no matter what sport I watch on TV, I always loathe the three-man booth. Saturday night at UFC 208 did nothing to change my attitude. I have long uh, sponsored the opinion of the CME and others that the UFC just needs to make John Anik and Brian Stand the A broadcast team. Uh, I felt with the three-man combo we had this weekend, it was still just Joe Rogan beating dead horses about curved gloves, leg kicks, announcing Fighter X to be gassed, etc. Cormier using ten words when five would work, and poor John Anik rarely having a chance to do the actual play-by-play. These are my thoughts on it. Now I would like to hear yours. Josh Montgomery there putting a new uh, spin on how to end an email to the Co-Main Event Podcast. Okay, I, I see what he's saying about John Anik not really getting a chance to do yeah, much play by I partially play. agree with this with this assessment. Now, uh at the very start of the UFC two oh eight pay per view, when you do the when they're doing the stand up next to the cage, uh where they kinda introduce the fights and they do a little chit chat about what's gonna happen, uh I felt to my I thought to myself that the chemistry between John Anik and Joe Rogan uh, and not, you know, kind of independent of the addition of Daniel Cormier, who I also like as an announcer. But I felt like uh, the chemistry, especially between those two guys, was already better than the chemistry between Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg after like a million years of those guys doing their announcing together. And I was like, oh, okay, this seems like it's going to work. Like this is this is exactly what I want kind of from a UFC broadcast team. And I didn't end up feeling negative about the three-man booth per se. And in fact, I think it's kind of fascinating to listen to Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier talk to each other about fighting because it's two knowledgeable and passionate guys kind of hashing it out about what's going on inside the cage. But I do agree with the criticism that uh, it's almost like there's not enough space to go around to have three guys out there, especially for John Anik, who is, we think, taking over the play-by-play duties um, during UFC pay-per-views, at least uh, temporarily at the beginning of this year, uh, I felt I did feel a little bit bad for him. It just didn't seem like there was enough space for him to interject uh, the stuff that he was doing. I I see that. To that, I would say they're still new at it. Yeah. If you give them some time to figure out how the the rhythm of that is supposed to work and who should be talking when, uh, and I'm sure that's some stuff that they discussed afterwards, um, or you'd hope that that's some stuff that they all discuss afterwards. I could see them making this work because I think a, a three-man booth could be a lot of fun if you have the right three guys in there, and I think that we're kind of moving in the right direction there. Um, so I don't, I would not pass a negative judgment on it just yet. Yeah, uh, I, the the future of the UFC broadcast booth is probably also still in flux. Uh, I did see on Twitter, I don't know if you saw this, that someone asked Brian Stan if he was going to be a member of a three-man broadcast booth anytime in the future, and he retweeted it with the one-word reply, nope, huh. which makes you wonder, like, nope, because you're not interested, or nope, because you feel like it's been decided and you're not part of it, or, you know, what's going on here? Just because I like Daniel Cormier as a, as a broadcaster, but I feel like if you're going to have a three-man booth and have a fighter or a former fighter out there, uh, it could kind of be interchangeable, really, with Stan uh, or Cormier or even Dominic Cruz if he gets a little bit more live color commentary experience under his belt. You know, I think, like, Cormier and Cruz and those guys are all good. I just think it's better. I, I prefer to have a retired fighter 
doing yeah. it because yeah. you can just get into some weird situations where the guy is calling a, a fight that's in his division or he's calling a fight of a, a teammate and, and stuff like, you know, sometimes that kind of insight he can give you knowing the guys as teammates um, is interesting. But I also think that there are just like too many potential like awkward conflicts that come up with an active fighter. All right, next question this week comes to us from Jonathan Ganyu. He writes, Oh, Dana White, you rascally scamp. Just when I've been paying extra attention to your increasingly rare interviews to build a case against you as worst executive 2017, uh, like calling your welterweight champ a drama queen because racism isn't a thing, he goes and calls UFC 208 the steaming turd of an event it was. No excuses, just old Dana shooting straight, reminding us why we all fell in love with him in the first place. Shucks, Dana, how can I stay mad at you? Am I wrong? Do these moments of decidedly unpromoter-like candor uh, make him more of a sympathetic character? Well, he's always been, well, not always, but he has a track record for being uh, candid about the pay-per-view sucking after it sucked. Right, right. He will never admit beforehand that this one is not that great. Yeah. And, in fact, will yell at you if you try to suggest that maybe this one is not uh, worth paying for. Right. But I would I would add to that in terms of Dana White's candor, like, not just us negatively assessing an event after the fact, but he's always had this thing, which I think is uh been a key to a lot of his popularity, where he comes across as very fan-friendly. And I think part of that is him saying stuff like this where, you know, when an event doesn't deliver it, it makes him look uh, like the straight shooting guy when he comes out and says, my favorite part of this night was, is going to be the plane ride home. Uh, and, you know, he like that's, I think that's always been one of the keys to his popularity is where he does stuff like where they have one of those uh, public press conferences and he tells everyone beforehand, don't ask me for free tickets to the UFC. I will not give them to, to you. Do not ask me. And the first question from fans is a guy asking him for tickets and Dana White gives them to him. Like that's always been kind of his thing. And I think that like it's been very effective for him in, in building political capital with UFC fans. And I think, you know, this instance of him saying uh, this about UFC 208 is not out of character for him. Well, no, and it's not out of character for him because it requires him to criticize the work of other people. Like he's, say he's not saying like this was a steaming turd of an event because we didn't put together a great lineup. Um, or because the, the matchups weren't that great. He's just saying, like, the fights just weren't very much fun to watch, and hey, what are you going to do? Um, so it's, I, I don't know if you get too many points for your, your candor if you're just, you know, going to put it all on somebody else. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that in, in round number one. We, 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 we will talk more about that. I still thought, like, uh, to see Dana White come out and say that this was a, was a bad event, uh, at least to me, was uh, preferable to him saying it was an amazing event and shut up, you <laughs> yeah. goofs who said it wasn't. Yeah, well, I mean, if you make me choose between those two options, fine. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, after a less than stellar UFC 208 card, the Ultimate Fighting Championship is going to be rebounding with a fantastic card in... Oh, wait, sorry, forget that. Other than an intriguing main event between Derek Lewis and Travis Brown in Halifax, there isn't really a lot going on there. Are there any redeeming matchups that you are looking forward to? Uh, ben, since we aren't going to spend a round this week talking about um, this UFC Fight Night 105 from Nova Scotia on Sunday night, so both a weird night of the week and an unorthodox start time for the UFC main card, it'll be on Sunday uh, at 7 p.m. here in the one true time zone. Really going to screw up my hockey game. Yeah, so a day late and an hour early. 
than what we're used to getting on these uh, Fox Sports 1 shows. I figured we could spend a couple minutes talking both about uh, this heavyweight fight, uh, Derek Lewis against Travis Brown, and anything else on the uh, fight night card that that catches our eye. It's interesting to juxtapose this heavyweight main event against the Bellator heavyweight main event, Fedor against Matt Mitrione that we're going to talk about in round three. But uh, which, which one of these two things do you think as an MMA fan, you look at it and think uh, you're more interested in watching? Well, as far as relevance to the, any actual heavyweight picture, Derek Lewis, Travis Brown has a whole lot more going for it. But if you're into just some straight up weirdness, yep. And let's be honest, either one of these could deliver some straight-up weirdness. But, like, you know, only only one of those fights is going to have some dude in a stripy sweater going out there and possibly getting himself murdered. So, it's hard to, to beat Fedor on free TV still that has that weird, weird appeal that just won't die. I don't know why. Yeah, we just talked about uh, recently the heavyweight division seeming somewhat resurgent with the likes of Francis Ngannou. Uh, going out and getting a big win over Andre Arlovsky. Obviously, Derek Lewis at 32 years old comes into this thing. Uh, perhaps the most prominent, I guess we call him a prospect, like a young prospect, uh, wet behind the ears in this heavyweight division at 32 years old. Uh, he'll be trying to go out and get his sixth win in a row. And clearly, it would be meaningful for him to uh, get a victory over Travis Brown, even though Brown has you know, uh, fallen on somewhat hard times lately. He comes in... Uh, fresh off two losses in a row, albeit to Cain Velasquez and Fabricio Verdum. Uh, and he is just two and four in his last six. Uh, but still, it would be a big deal for, for Derek Lewis to go out there and, and knock Travis Brown out, right? Yeah, it would. And, uh, you know, likewise, I think for Travis Brown, if he went out there and knocked out Derek Lewis, it shows that, you know, he gets to remind us all that he's not gone yet, that he's still around here. And, and also that heavyweight is still absolutely insane did you see the odds on this one no i was just gonna ask if you had them in front of you yeah uh i'm looking at plus 105 travis brown minus 125 for Derek lewis which is i feels like the odds makers way of saying like well probably Derek lewis but shit man it's heavyweight yeah yeah i agree uh as far as what else is on this card though i mean johnny Hendricks versus hector lombard that one seems like, uh, you know, when the, the Joker snaps the pool cue in half and says only one guy can, can join the team. Does it not? <laughs> it does a little bit. It does. And Johnny Hendricks making his debut at middleweight here. Uh, I was surprised at your negative response to the awesome Johnny Hendricks <laughs> highlight reel that I sent you That's earlier not a highlight today, reel. There's, where there's... someone put together a brutal yet haunting look at the, the descent of Johnny Hendricks from welterweight, uh, title contender who almost took the strap off George St. Pierre to this like uh withered and cantankerous old man challenging the media to a weight cut uh before his last loss against Neil Magny. First of all, it's like 8 minutes long and it's just it's beautiful. It's just interviews while like the music goes oh the soundtrack is is wonderful, frankly. <laughs> You you refer to it as a hauntingly beautiful takedown of Johnny Hendricks. It is. And you seem to love that about it. I did. I was I was infatuated with it the whole time. Just listening to Johnny Hendricks hang himself with his own words. You think this is it for Big Rig? Think if he gets beat by Hector Lombard? What are we doing with him at this point? Well, first of all, you better show up and make weight at middleweight. Yeah. Yeah, you better. You, you, that probably is something you ought to focus on. Um there's a weird part of me that hopes 
Johnny Hendricks goes all Kelvin Gastelum, forced to fight at middleweight, goes out there, starches Hector Lombard. That would be wonderful. And rediscovers himself. Because if not, if he loses this one, somebody was asking me in the Twitter mailbag last week what I thought was the most like precipitous decline of any fighter. And I had to say it was Johnny Hendricks, just because you know he goes from being a point or two on the scorecards away from beating the GOAT at welterweight, George St. Pierre, to then you know he goes like one in five. Uh, after that, and you know, just has a copy, ha, cup of coffee with the belt, as Chad Dundas would say, and then his career is in the toilet. Um, you lose this one, and man, it's just, I, it's, it's hard for me to think of anybody who had just a more dismal turn in their career than Johnny Hendricks. Plus, I'm going to add to that, middleweight is so weird right now that if Johnny Hendricks was out there throwing them bungalows, knocking fools out, old school Johnny Hendricks style, feel like that would be terrific. feel like it would be wonderful. I can't think of a guy at 85 that I wouldn't line up to pay money to watch Johnny Hendricks go out there and, and, and toss overhand murder balls at his face. You all Romero. Yes, absolutely. Bring it on. That's, that's irresponsible. Maybe. I didn't never said I was trying to be a picture of responsibility over <laughs> that's here. That's true. Last question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy, who writes, and he puts this in parentheses, Whisper excitedly. You don't have to tell me, Eric Murphy. Jacare. Jacare. Holy shit. Can we all just holy, agree? Holy shit. The Gator Dunn clamped his jaws down and put an end to the domain belt for a barbarian.gov. Jacare's ground game is nuts, as in a nut allergy nuts. He makes really talented fighters look like untrained, brittle children on the ground. Tim Boach landed a solid punch, then boom. Uh, anaphylaxis with no epi, EpiPen in sight. It's an extended metaphor with a nut allergy. Yes. This fight felt like we were just spinning the wheels for Jacare because of the British logjam at the top. So true question, how long until the middleweight division gets an interim belt? I don't want it to happen, but shit, would any of us waste breath on an inward gasp if we saw the poster? No. No, we would not. No, we would not. Jacare, though, goes out there and gets the only stoppage on the UFC 208 card uh, and and the only stoppage on the main card, which felt long as, as hell, by the way. We'll talk about that later also. But, yeah, grabs the Kimura submission over Tim Boach three minutes and 41 seconds into the first round. Uh, and it's kind of a shame for Jacare Souza that there's only one title at this point because – He's, he is just kind of spinning his wheels, beating guys that he probably shouldn't even be fighting out there, uh, while Michael Bisping takes his sweet time to try to decide if we're going to do Yoel Romero uh, or if George St. Pierre is going to parachute into the top ten uh, and, and give us something marketable. Yeah, and for one thing, I think it's worth noting that pulling off a Kimura submission on your guy Tim Boach at this point is not exactly unheard of. I believe that's like his third loss in the UFC to Kimura, which... Un- uncommon. We were just talking not too long ago how it seems like you hardly ever see armbar submissions or arm lock submissions of any kind. Uh, and he seems to get himself Kimura an awful lot. But again, you don't really need to have any huge flaws in your game for Jacare Souza to go out there and submit you, I guess. Uh, I think, you know. Hey, wait a second, though. One of those is the Phil Davis one, right? Right. Which is crazy. The other one was Luke Rockhold kind of inverted triangle Kimura double whammy. And then there's this. Yeah. You've got to protect your arms a little better than that, is what I'm saying. Right, but it's not like Tim Boach is going out there first oh, day of training, white belt style. Here we go. The, just the uh, the moderator from 
barbarianhorde.tv. I'm going to suspend your account. <laughs> not going to hear it. I'm going to suspend about his your guy. account. Oh, no. BJJ Lover 69. <laughs> where will I go will on the be, internet now? You will not be posting pornography. <laughs> That's where I will go. Uh, yeah, okay. But Jacques you know, and you hear him talk afterwards, and it seems like I guess he's got as good an attitude as you can have about this, which is like not sitting around waiting, like just keep calling people out, keep accusing people of running from you, keep submitting people and then doing the gator chomp that we all love to do. Uh, and, you know, I guess that's the best of kind of a bad situation because it does feel like, you know, we. I really enjoy the whole thing that Jacare brings to the table and he's 37 years old. Yeah, I was just going to say for a 37-year-old man, he's displaying some patience. Right. He's and, taking you know, it about as well as you could expect. Yuel Romero is like 72 somehow and still like a huge jacked monster. So I guess, you know, you can't... It's not, and you know, look at the champion. So it's not like it's only a division for spring chickens at this point. But still, if I'm Jacare, my patience will begin to fray very, very shortly here. Jacare versus Johnny Hendricks coming to an event near you. That's <laughs> going to watch. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we're going to get a little bit big picture here on the co-main event podcast, as we sometimes do, and talk about where we are at with the UFC right now in 2017, uh, coming off this UFC 208 fight card, uh, which was kind of beleaguered from the start. It was originally scheduled uh, to be in late January at the Honda Center in Anaheim, but it had to be uh, postponed and relocated due to a, quote, lack of suitable headliners, according to Dave Doyle from MMA Fighting in his original report about it. Uh, so they went ahead and uh, moved it all the way across the country to Brooklyn, New York, and we still only came up with a main event featuring Holly Holm taking on Jermaine Durandamy for the UFC inaugural women's featherweight title, which was a weird fight in and of itself. We had to bring in Anderson Silva to fight Derek Brunson on short notice to try to prop this thing up. Uh, and then when you actually go out and have the fight card, I guess you would could say it did not deliver. Uh, this, as I said in the intro, kind of felt like a backbreaker to me. And as the fourth event of 2017, where we've had main events featuring Valentina Shevchenko and Dennis Bermudez, and now Jermaine Durandamy winning the women's featherweight title, uh, I guess I will just ask the question to you. Is this is this just a short-term downturn here, or do you feel like the UFC is in a little bit of trouble? Well, my instinct is to say short-term downturn, and I think it's kind of a perfect storm of events. You got Ronda Rousey 
looking like she's probably done, or at least not fighting again anytime soon. You got Conor McGregor either waiting around to become a father or trying to box Mayweather uh, or just screwing around with everybody and throwing his weight around and doing whatever he wants to do. So he's kind of out of the picture, too. Uh, and one of the things we learned looking at the uh, UFC's pitch to investors uh, during this sale was just how dependent they are on those few huge stars that they have. Just how dependent they are on pay-per-view dollars still and how much those pay-per-view dollars depend on having one of those stars out there to, to move the units. Um, and then you get, you know, people that you would normally be able to fall back on as kind of like your your third most, most popular uh, appeals, like guys like John Jones, who, for another reason, you know, he's, he's suspended until uh, midsummer, so he's out too. You, you know, and it's like you can't pin them all on any one thing. They all just seem like parts of the business. Um, the problem is that the UFC just does not have enough to sustain the the pace that it wants to keep um, with the rest of the roster that it has right now. Yeah, and I think just adding to the unease is the fact that uh, WME IMG just bought the company last July, and we've had a lot of turnover inside the company, some mass layoffs, some uh, fairly high-profile people. Joe Silva, Mike Goldberg, kind of a handful of executives have all left the company uh, you've got a new matchmaker and Mick Maynard just kind of, uh, uh, you know, assumedly still trying to fit in alongside uh, Sean Shelby as UFC matchmaker. So a lot of different stuff happening to make you feel like we don't really know where we're headed uh, with the UFC right now. Um, I continue to believe that I think WME IMG is going to uh, continue to, to reshape and remake the the company moving forward. But at the same time, uh, you're locked into the current. UFC broadcast deal with Fox, which means you can't do a whole heck of a lot in terms of uh, your menu of live events. You got a certain number that you got to come up with this year, uh, and until that deal lapses, I believe at the end of 2018. Uh, but at the same time, this being the first pay per view of the year, uh, and it just being kind of so lackluster all the way around, both on paper and in practice, and the fact that you stuck us for 60 bucks for it. When this, after this thing was over and Jermaine Durandamy and, and Holly Holm had their kind of like ugly mess of a fight, it did make me wonder like, will even hardcore fans tune out? Uh, especially in the short term here where it seems like you have so many kind of underwhelming events right in a row. Yeah, but I guess the question that comes along with that is, will they just tune right back in right. when the good stuff comes back? Yeah. And I think for the most part, they will. And I think if you look right now at like the the spring lineup, basically for the UFC, or like the late winter, early spring lineup that you got coming out, you could make a good case for tuning out right now. I yep. would not blame you. I would not go on record as saying you are not a real fight fan if you decided to cultivate some other interests until May or right. whatever. Well, you got UFC 209, uh, which has the Tyron Woodley, uh, Stephen Thompson rematch coming up uh, in early March. I believe that's what, March 13th? Is that right? Oh, March 4th. Sorry. Uh, and, uh, you know, that also has the Habib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson lightweight fight uh, on it, which is that that's a card that's going to get the hardcore fans excited. I think that's definitely one you want to tune in for, even though it's probably not going to post the best pay-per-view buy rate. But then immediately on the heels of that, you've got this fight night with Vitor Belfort taking on Kelvin Gastelum in the main event. That one's in Fortaleza, Brazil. And then, of course, the week after that, you got uh, Jimmy Manawa uh, against Corey Anderson, beast in overtime over there at the O2 Arena 
in London. Uh, yeah, everyone's talking about that one. So yeah, really gets uh, you all tingly thinking your, about uh, it. Your point about the spring is is I think well made since that's all we get until April eighth when Daniel Cormier fights Anthony Johnson at. Uh, UFC uh, 210. But don't forget about then later in April where you got the UFC Fight Night Cub Swanson versus Artem Lobov. Well, that's right. They just uh, they just announced that one. Yeah. Which is uh, a slap in the face to all the paying customers down there at Cubby Sampson's as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I guess the, the hope is that that one is just to fill Cubby Sampson's up to watch him perform a human sacrifice. Now, we knew the UFC had fired a lot of promotional bullets in 2016. Uh, I think it doesn't take a genius to figure out that when the company is for sale for the first half of the year, you want to try to make it look as profitable as possible. And then once you sell the damn thing for $4.2 billion the second half of the year, uh, maybe you're trying to make them profit goals, or at least trying to make uh, that enormous price tag justifiable any possible way you can. So I think, as I said, we all knew that there was going to be kind of a reloading or rebuilding phase at the beginning of this year. Uh, it still seems pretty likely that 2017 will be more of a bust year than a boom year for the UFC. Although, uh, what are the odds you think that we see just a smoke in second half of this year when John Jones comes back, assumedly, uh, challenges the winner of Daniel Cormier versus Anthony Johnson? There's a chance Conor McGregor in the UFC might bury the hatchet, get Conor McGregor back in the cage. Probably that being the more likely outcome than anything else. Uh, maybe George St. Pierre is off the couch and fighting Michael Bisping at some point. Uh, there's a chance that the second half of this year could really uh, turn things up and be on fire. I just don't think that's going to be enough to put you neck and neck with what you did last year, obviously. No, I, just because last year seems like it was such a monster year for there. But, you know, you mentioned George St. Pierre. If I'm George St. Pierre, I feel like my negotiating position is getting better by the day. Because they, the UFC is looking at the calendar the same way we are. Uh, and seeing a lot of dates that need filling and a lot of pay-per-views that need selling. And, you know, you're, you're not going to do it. Like, Aldo versus Holloway or something is one of those fights where we're going to get excited about it. The hardcores are going to get excited about it. There's going to be, you know, roughly 400,000 people who are super jacked about it and not a whole lot else, uh, beyond that. So, uh, in order to really reach out and do those big numbers, you need guys like George St. Pierre to come back or you need guys like Conor McGregor to come back. Um, and, and that to me, I think, like, we talk about people tuning out and just saying, like, all right, there's not a whole lot going on. There's not a whole lot to hold your interest right now. Um, but I think those people, even if they tune out, the, the nature of how they consume the media is like, it's such that it's not like they're not going to hear about it if Conor McGregor comes back and schedules a fight. Like, they're still going to show up back up for that one. I think if you're the UFC, where are you, the the problem that comes in is that if they're not tuning into the fight nights, you know, it's one thing like, hey, they're not paying 60 bucks to see Holly Holm and Jermaine Duran to me. Okay, fine. Uh, if they're not even, like, sticking around for your regular fight night shows, they're not seeing who you got coming up next, uh, it makes it harder and harder for you to build the next pay-per-view stars that you're going to need because we've seen the kind of the cycle of this business. I feel like it's kind of a stock MMA talking point to talk about how uh... – Bellator is perhaps catching up to talk about the gulf between the UFC and Bellator. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that, that Bellator is narrowing the gap just because I think, I think you're still dealing with, uh, two kind of different ball games in terms of what both of those companies are trying to do. But it is interesting to note right off the start of this year that as the UFC is kind of slumping, uh, Bellator seems to be surging in, in a lot of ways, even though Chael Sonnen versus Tito Ortiz was not a good fight. Uh, it scored a pretty darn good rating, 
on uh, Spike TV. And then this weekend, opposite, or the day before, I guess, Derek Lewis and Travis Brown, We, as we talked about, you got the Fedor Emelianenko, uh, Matt Mitrione fight, uh, which I think is arguably the better heavyweight fight this weekend. And then, you know, a couple of weeks from, that, from there, you've got the Jimmy Manoa, Corey Anderson fight headlining in London, immediately followed a little bit after that by Bellator, also headlining in London with Paul Daly against Rory McDonald. So you got several high-profile instances here where it seems like Bellator is able to offer you a better product uh, than what the UFC has done. I don't know if that is meaningful at all or if it just uh, speaks to the to the kind of slump that the UFC is in right now. Yeah, and I, I still think that for a lot of people, the UFC brand name is that's the the part where you get into hard to to bridge that gulf. Plus, you know, you can put together a few events here or there, but if you're Bellator, but then if you got to go back to uh, relying on us and our burning desire to see one of the Pitbull brothers do the damn thing, yeah, I don't know. You're going to struggle there. Uh, but you know, I keep thinking when we talk about the UFC's outlook for the the coming months. Again, I can't help but think there just could not been have a better time to sell this thing if you were if you're the previous owners yeah. and they maintain like you know a, a small ownership stake in it so it's not like they're completely uh, out of the orbit of the UFC but man all the issues that we see that are potentially coming up on the regulatory side uh the you know the ongoing problems of USADA just yanking some of your more marketable fighters left and right as you try to get your arms around the the drug situation in this sport uh and then this kind of mix of factors keeping you from doing the same huge pay-per-view numbers you did last year it's just it's a great time to sell the thing run off with a a drink with an umbrella in it and kick back on a beach yeah it sure is and we'll have to keep uh, we'll have to keep uh, uh our focus on where this thing goes and how the WME IMG era continues to unfold over the next several years but if you are the Fertitas yeah, man. Now you got that Las Vegas Raiders money you're thinking about sinking back in. You you played this one about exactly right. Yeah, you did. Anyway, uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do a little Master Tweet Theater. It's been a few weeks since we had the chance to catch up with him, so we're excited about that. That starts right now. that time again, we welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am rich and creamy. You know what? No, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not, not going to do it at all. I'm just... <laughs> well, I assume you've come to us with yet another half-assed theme. Yes, sir, I have. It's a very exciting one. I feel like Master Tweet Theater has gotten a little too easy lately. Do you? Yes. Okay. So the theme this week is deep cuts. Oh, no. So the theme is basically that it's going to be hard? Yes, very difficult for you and Chad. Fairly obscure fighters, except for two recurring favorites. So it's another 60% <laughs> theme. Damn it. How do you even fuck this up? I, I bet you won't guess one of them. <laughs> I guess that's a safe bet. Well, is this the part where you hit us with a weird sponsor? Oh, yes. Let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Glockzack, the realistic replica handgun that shoots Prozac. 
Do you worry that a friend or loved one might be at risk of suicide? Replace his existing handgun with a Glockzack and watch him blow his depression away. Imagine his surprise after he drinks a bottle of scotch, writes out a note apologizing to his family, puts the Glockzack in his mouth, and shoots himself full of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. He'll think he's ending it all when he's finally getting the help he needs. It's a hilarious prank that might just save a life. <laughs> Glockzack. If you have chronic depressive disorder, why not take the easy way out? <laughs> God damn you. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Do you remember the theme, sir? I I believe I do. Is it deep cuts? It is. Okay. Deep cuts. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I go in swinging like Jake Ayamada. Take one to give one. Toe to toe, motherfucker. How is motherfucker spelled? That's a good question, sir. It is M-O-T-H-A-F-U-C-K-A. And did somebody try to write Jake LaMotta and misspell it, or did you just screw it up? I presume he means Jake LaMotta, but it is definitely spelled Jake Ayamata. So you got him to give something away. He told us it's a he. Yes. Because I saw you over there, Chad. You you have a Jessica I oh, kind of face I mean, right now. Can you blame me? That's pretty I-ish. <laughs> it is. It is a little I-ish. And... If not for Sir Nigel's threat to have at least three of the two of these be not the same person over and over again, I would have thought about that one. Um, I'm going to say Ally Quinta. So you think Al Quinta spelled Lamada like he would spell Ayakinta? That's possible. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go Chan Sung Jung here uh, just because deep cuts. Okay. Both fine guesses, both very deep cuts, and both wrong. It is Herman Torado. What? That's Who? not what? a person. Bellator welterweight Herman Torado. Fuck you. Maybe Fuck you. Get Tirado. out of here. Get up. Get out of your seat and leave the premises immediately. Come out here with Bellator fighter Herman Torado. Toe to toe, motherfucker. <laughs> what are you? All right. Deep okay. Cuts. This is some bullshit, Chad. Continue. This is this is under protest. Under extreme protest. No more coasting on your early careers. Time to get out there and compete. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet the second. Highlight of my night. Shaq has always been my idol. Photograph of the tweeter in question with Shaq. Okay. Shaq was out there, right? Uh -huh. Was Shaq at the at the Bellator event, the Chael Sonnen Tito Ortiz Bellator event? No. Okay, this is either that or UFC 208. Where where is Shaq? God damn it! He's everywhere. Anywhere a child is hungry, Shaq is there. Um, deep cuts, huh? So I guess I'm gonna go with Dave Manet. Former UFC middleweight champion Dave Manet. That is a deep cut, sir. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of Shaq with Amanda Nunez, so I'm going to go with that. Amanda Nunez, a.k.a. Amanda Nunes. Both fine guesses, both cuts of varying depth, and both wrong. It is Khalil Roundtree. Khalil okay. Roundtree, fresh off his knockout win at UFC Houston. You had to look that up, didn't you? I sure did. Highlight of his night. It was the same night he knocked a dude out with a knee in the face, and yet meeting Shaq was the best part. <laughs> Fair enough. I think it's touching. <clears throat> Tweet the third. This is one of the easy ones. Thanks for telling us in yes. advance. <clears throat> Only balls give orders. Hashtag easy money. Hashtag UFC. Uh, what? Only balls give orders? Only balls. Jorge Masvidal? That's what I was going to say. I was going to say Jorge Masvidal, because uh, that sounds like that sounds like something he would say. Yeah. 
And but is he trying for a pun that I'm not getting? Sir Nigel? It is! It is oh, Jorge Masvidal right. Cambred! What do we have any idea? What is he talking about? Deeply unclear what he means. But his balls give him orders and orders to others, I suppose. Huh. Mm, that's unsettling to think Game about. Bread. Also, I believe he should be called Jorge Bread Game Masvidal. You know what? Maybe that's for a different segment. Bread Game. On this show. Get that bread. Or another show that I will mm. not listen to. Tweet the fourth. Sir Nigel's Bread Game. <laughs> Tweet the fourth. This is my business partner, Fred. Please give his page a like. And if you need real estate help, call him. Chris Lieben. That's a good guess because Chris Lieben is now involved in real estate. In the real estate game. Sounds like something he would tweet. Uh, Holly Holm. Okay. Both fine guesses again. Both cuts of varying depth and both wrong. It is Dan Severin. See, but Dan, you like a, an occasional Dan Severin. Is this considered, is this one of your deep cuts or is it's, this one of the recurring ones? It's been a while with Dan Severin. Almost all of his Twitter feed is just blind Facebook links. <laughs> Hi, and I wonder, so his, his business partner is a real estate guy. What, what are they business partners in? Do we have I, any idea? I'm going to say real estate and whatever idea Dan has. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Yuck! Everyone I see a sexy ass chick getting with a dude, it totally grosses me out. LOL. Not like guys are gross or anything. Cough they are. Cough. I got this. Since I got it, do you want to take a stab at it? Uh, well, I mean, it sounds somewhat Jessica I-ish again. Uh, Unless the mastery of the English language is too great. That's, I mean, it's borderline, I would say. This is what would be one of the more sober Jessica I uh, tweets. Um, Tisha Torres. Tanya Evinger. It is, it is Tanya Evinger again doing exactly what we want her to do. I'm telling you, between her, her Twitter and her Instagram, and you gotta cobble them together to really get the full picture, but it, it does not let you down. Tanya Evinger is exactly what I want from a pro fighter lesbian. And I haven't looked lately, but Valentine's Day being, uh, tomorrow, I, can almost guarantee you that she has some post up there about how when her girlfriend asks what she's getting for Valentine's Day and it's just a picture of two fingers. There's, I guarantee you there's some shit like that up there right now. My God. I'm telling you. Just Andrew Dice Clay in the body of a 125-pound woman. <laughs> 135-pound, I believe, but that's okay. Oh, oh, well, bad news for Tanya Evinger. Well, I guess that's, that's it, huh? That's, that's your deep cuts. Yes, yes it is, sir. What else you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting new project about an extreme athlete turned government operative who must pretend not to be gay when his son comes to visit. <laughs> I see. And what's it called? It's called Triple X, Return of Xander Casual Fall. And what role do you play? I play a tough-talking stuntman named Triple N. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, he back. 
Anderson Silva, former UFC middleweight champion, one of the formerly greatest fighters on earth, goes out there and gets his first win since 2012. And first official win. For first official win. Right. First one to stay on the books as yeah. of right now. That's right. <laughs> It's uh, been it's been all of like forty eight hours. We'll just keep that on the books. True. Um, and this one is not without some question. I know Derek Brunson's uh, going to be upset, feeling like he won this fight. First of all, who do you think won the damn fight? I thought you were going to get a Derek Brunson decision here, even though Derek Brunson didn't act. You know, didn't necessarily come out and set the world on fire against Anderson Silva. I still thought he won at least two out of three rounds. Uh, and as I wrote for the story that I had to write on Bleacher Report Sunday, Sunday morning after this thing, I'm not sure that this fight goes the way it does either, uh, in terms of the final decision or in terms of, of Derek Brunson's kind of uncharacteristic, uh, timidity, uh, if that's not Anderson Silva out there having this fight. Right. Well, you know, the, if you're Derek Brunson, I can understand wanting to be a little bit more conservative this one. You did just come off a wild and crazy ill-advised loss to Bobby Knuckles. Bobby Knuckles, you sprinted right at him, and he he went all Bobby Knuckles on you. Yes, he did. Uh, then you come into this fight against Anderson goddamn Silva, and you think, you know, hey, he's not the same guy he was. He's a little older now. You think you can take him. But at the same time, there is something about Anderson Silva where it's like the less he does, the more worried you might feel about him right. if you're in there in the cage with him. Like you think it, he's setting you up for some Forrest Griffin type right. shit. You you saw all the highlights, man. You you came up and saw all the same shit we did. Like he if he's just standing there dangling his his left hand out in the open space, staring at you while remaining completely motionless, you're like, well, this is obviously a trap. Like clearly, I'm not going to attack right now. I'm going to wait, see what he does, try not to get myself. I'll get my whole shit broke and end up at the next guy in the highlight reel. I don't want that. So, like, I'm going to just kind of play it cool here. And you could see him kind of get caught in that a few times where he's just kind of watching and waiting to see what Anderson Silva does. And the, uh, the problem is that as Anderson Silva gets older, the the ratio of standing there about to do awesome shit and then doing awesome shit changes. Right. And he's there's a lot more standing now and a lot less actual action. So if you're standing there waiting on him, waiting for your opportunity, that leads to like a stalemate too often, and that's how you get into a judging situation that you're not happy with. And I guess in fairness, like this kind of performance from Anderson Silva is not totally out of character for him. We've seen kind of uh, tepid uh, performances going back as far as the Talos Latus fight in 2009, uh, the Damian Maya fight in 2010. We've had situations where when he is up against a person that, that doesn't engage him as much as he would like, uh, sometimes we get these sort of long drawn out decision type fights at the same time though. Uh, now that he is what, 41 years old, about to turn 42, I 42 believe, in April, in April, uh, when you're watching this thing on Fox sports one over the weekend, I feel like there were a lot of instances where, yeah, in flashes, he still appears to be Anderson Silva. But for the most part, it seemed like everyone watching except Derek Brunson knew that this was not the same Anderson Silva as the Anderson Silva who held the middleweight division in his terrifying sway for like seven years. Yeah, and... And again, you can't blame Derek Brunson for that, really. But then before the third round, you, you even see uh, Greg Jackson tell the guy... Uh, you're giving this guy too much respect. Go out there and do your thing. Fight him. Which, all of us watching at home, maybe you think, oh, really? But at the same time... Roughneck him. Go roughneck him. Yeah. Work for Chris Lieben, right? Yeah. 
But I don't know, man. It just seemed like uh, while it was worrying to hear Greg Jackson give that advice, it also seemed, you know, right as far as I was concerned, just because it, it like it seemed obvious from the outside looking in that we're dealing with a different and reduced version of Anderson Silva. And yet we're also dealing with an Anderson Silva who seems like he's probably just going to keep doing this. Because he talked afterwards and there was a part of me where he started uh, in his post-fight interview uh, getting a little emotional and I was like, oh, here it comes. Maybe this is what he was waiting for. He just wanted to get one more win, wanted to go out on a win, you know, like everybody does. Didn't want to go out with this, like, losing streak. So now that he got it, he's going to say he's done. And instead he says basically that he loves this shit so goddamn much he's never going anywhere. Right, which, like, uh, you know, is troubling with a lot of fighters. I don't necessarily feel as troubled by it right now when I see it in Anderson Silva as I might if I felt like he was a person who was in grave danger of of – uh, traumatic brain damage. Uh, I actually found it like kind of heartening and, and, uh, like kind of, I guess, unexpected when he's in the cage and he's like, yeah, you guys know I'm too old for this stuff. I'm too old for fighting. These guys are too fast and too strong for me, but I'm out here putting my heart into it because fighting is my life. Uh, I, I felt that was more like funny than, than worrisome at this point. But I think it brings up a, a good question because like I said at the top, ain't nobody going to tell Anderson Silva he can't keep doing this. Right. He's Anderson Silva. It reminded me of when John Jones used to have that dog he used to take everywhere. Remember that? <laughs> yes, he had that puppy where this. like he would bring the puppy no matter where he was, even if it was an obvious no dogs allowed <laughs> type situation. And I think like you wrote this line in the, when you do was spent the time at, at, uh, uh, Jackson's and I think it was in the hurt business maybe when he, maybe when John Jones came up to train at uh Elevation or something or at, no, uh, no 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 when uh yeah I was doing the thing on the grudge and they had a bunch of guys on the card in Newark and John Jones oh, that was right. where John Jones I think won the title off the and show he had gun. his dog with he him. had a dog with him and I think you wrote the line like John Jones is the Mozart of mixed martial arts and nobody's gonna tell Mozart he can't bring his dog in here right Mozart's S- bringing that dog same thing with Anderson Silva like no one's gonna tell Anderson Silva he can't keep fighting because he's Anderson Silva so I guess it brings up the obvious obvious uh, question are we okay with this are we as spectators okay with the greatest of all time going out there and not being so great anymore well and the thing is he's not taking terrible beatings so it's not like you can say hey he should stop for his own health like this is this is getting bad it's not like a bj penn kind of situation he can still go out there and you put him up against you know the guys in the bottom half of the top 15 he probably wins as many as he loses you know Uh, some of those guys maybe he even looks pretty good against And so, yeah, he also put some butts in seats, which, as we talked about in the last round, is a valuable thing these days. So the UFC is not going to tell him that he can't keep doing it either. Uh, And I guess, like, I I wrote a column about this earlier today, and one of the things that I kind of found myself dwelling on was how it's, you know, it's depressing when you see some of the guys who used to be great, and then they suddenly start getting knocked out and beat up a bunch, and you're just like, oh, man, this is awful to watch. What a... This sport will break your heart sometimes. And then you see a guy like Anderson Silva who used to be absolutely brilliant and now is just, you know, very good. And that's one of the better case scenarios for like an aging fighter. Yeah, it's amazing that he's out there at 42 years old fighting Derek Brunson and Daniel Cormier and like not doing that bad. But then there's also another part of me that when I see Anderson Silva show up each time looking a little bit more dad bodish, just a little bit more, yep. a little bit slower, you know, standing around a little bit more, the offense comes in like a, just a little bit less ferocious bursts, and you can just see it like little by little 
the the magic draining away yeah. in front of your eyes, which is kind of a bummer in a different way. Yeah, it is amazing to me, though, how uh, the tremendous amount of respect that he still commands, respect slash fear, really, from people like Derek Brunson and, frankly, from people like Cormier, uh, who, when they fought at UFC 200, you could tell, went out there with the mindset, like, this is a no-win situation for me. The last thing I want to do is fuck around with Anderson Silva on the feet because I could straight up get knocked out and I, and I'm not having that. Like that's a pretty, like that speaks to Anderson Silva's one time greatness almost more than anything else that, that you've got 33 year old in his prime Derek Brunson out here on Saturday night at UFC 208 still looking a little bit gun shy, even though we all know that it's not really. Uh, the ferocious Anderson Silva of old out there. Uh, you want to do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then, uh, we'll, we'll move on to round number three. Sure. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, we mentioned this in the Breakfast of Champions. I wrote about it a little bit last week, but, uh, it still bears shining a little bit of a light on that the Nevada State Athletic Commission added a new commissioner, uh, by the, the governor appointment in December. Uh, Stacey Alonzo, an executive vice president at Station Casinos. It's been added to the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Yes. Now, what in Stacey Alonzo's background, uh, you ask, makes her a good fit for a sports regulatory body? Basically none. Like, she's just going to work for casinos her entire life. And she seems like, you know, a, a good person, is really into domestic violence uh, awareness work and rescue animals and stuff like that. Seems like a, a fine person. The only thing that it seems ties her to this world of combat sports and regulation at all is that she works for the Fertitas, who, as we mentioned earlier, still maintain an ownership share uh, in the UFC uh, and still, you know, are hoping that the UFC does pretty well so they can hit those earnout goals, I'm sure. Uh, and this would seem to be an obvious conflict of interest. Like, there's just no reason why you would need an executive vice president from Station Casinos on the Nevada State Athletic Commission. And yet the commission's response when MMA Fighting reached out to them, when I reached out to them to get a statement, was basically like, we don't think it's a problem. She seems really nice. I'm sure she'd never do anything wrong. And even if she did, the uh, responsibility falls on the commissioners to tell us if they have a conflict of interest and recuse themselves if necessary. Which, are you fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding what me? What you're basically saying is you have no rules about conflict of interest. And that you don't really care. And that you don't even really respect, like, the, the fans or the media or anybody enough to even be more subtle about this shit. Or come up with a more plausible explanation for why you're doing it. You're just kind of putting it out there and knowing that it doesn't matter because you can do whatever you want. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, Ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Jermaine Durandamy's fists. Not only because she can't seem to control them. Right. At opportune moments, particularly the end of rounds, but also after her fight against Holly Holm, uh, when she's out there declaring that clinching is not her game and she's here to brawl and basically just let me bang, bro, uh, when the UFC uh, announced team broaches the topic of her potentially fighting Chris Cyborg for the 145-pound title in her next fight. Oh, oh, wait a second. No, I got to get hand surgery because I hurt my hand. Like two fights ago, she says. In 2015. 2015. Still out here competing with it, but if it comes down to a Chris Cyborg fight, she's got to get hand surgery. Fast forward to today, and it turns out that Jermaine Durandamy, upon arriving home and discovering, oh wait, there was some controversy in my win over Holly Holm, jumps on the Facebook, the Book of Faces, and posts this screed where she offers Holly Holm an immediate rematch so that we know... 
that the women's featherweight champion is legitimate. Are you fucking kidding me? You just told us that before you fight again, you gotta get surgery. So, are your fists okay? Do they need surgery? Or is it just like, are we taking this on a case-by-case basis according to who you're supposed to fight? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Saturday night in San Jose, California, the last emperor, Fedor Emelianenko, finally arrives in Bellator, and not just for a fan event at the Dave and Busters, he will actually be in the cage, fighting one Matthew Stephen Mitrione uh, in the heavyweight main event of Bellator 172. Kind of surprises me to see, I guess, that Matt Mitrione and Fedor are approximately the same age. Fedor is, I think, just barely a year and change, maybe like almost two years older than Matt Mitrione. That can't be. That's not possible. Uh, it also seems surprising, Ben, that since that disastrous stretch for Fedor uh, in 2010, 2011, when he lost three fights in a row in Strike Force uh, to Fab Verdum, Bigfoot Silva, and Dan Henderson, he has since won five fights in a row. Yeah, well, I mean, on paper, yeah. So he is just riding a win streak here if you don't... Uh, Talk about the majority decision over uh, Fabio Maldonado. Or the fact that in the fight before that, he fought the uh, kickboxer dude at Ryzen who had like two MMA fights or something. What, you talking about Jaideep Singh? You know who I'm talking about. What are we going to get from Fedor Emelianenko and Bellator this weekend, Ben? And is it a thing that's going to make us sad? (laughs) I think I'm going to say odds are pretty good that we'll end the night sad. Come on, when you think about it. Because it seems to me that... The best hope you have is that Fedor goes out there, throws an overhand murder ball right away, and knocks out Matt Mitrione. Because if he has to stand there for any length of time throwing those punches back and forth, one of the things I think we saw in that Fabio Maldonado fight is that Fedor fights like he's still Fedor. Yes. And it's still 2004 or whatever. Uh, and none of those things are true. Like, he can't take a punch the way he used to. Uh, everybody else is kind of a little bit better. He doesn't have that same ability to just go out there and plow through people with this just unfuckwithable badassery. All that stuff is just not there anymore, but he still fights exactly the same. He's like a middle-aged dad who gets a little too involved in a one-on-one basketball game with his daughter's new boyfriend and ends up blowing out his knee. Okay. That's my Fedor Emelianenko analogy. For right now. I don't feel like a whole lot of thought went into that. I didn't. I just came up with it instead of listening to you talk. Okay. Uh, If you're Bellator, though, man, and I mean, I guess you can make the case, and you could have made the case for a long time now, that while being kind of like the softer, gentler answer to Dana White, that Scott Coker is actually kind of a cold-blooded dude and is out here just wringing every drop out of these old fighters that he possibly can. Uh, if you're Bellator, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I just think that, that like that's you can look at it that way. I think some people do look at it that way. But if you're Bellator, like what do you hope to get out of Fedor Emelianenko? And honestly, like almost what do you, is the point of having him here fight Matt Mitrione? 
You know what the point of having him here is. It's the same... Getting that 2.68 million yeah. rating? It's the same thing they're doing. Like, Bellator has clearly seized on a strategy here, which is that the fights don't have to be good. They just have to feature somebody that we know and still care about. And if that ends up resulting in some kind of crazy weirdness, even better. And that's working. It really is working. And, like... Uh, there's no way I'm not going to watch Fedor Emelianenko and, and Matt right. Matrione right. go out there and do it. I mean, I would – the only thing that would make it awesome for me is if it were at that EFN crazy event uh, in St. Petersburg where you got the giant, like, spider lady coming down out of the ceiling and a bunch of uh, trapeze artists, like, singing their – everybody's entrance song. That would be rad. But if it has to happen in the Bellator cage and Fedor's ongoing attempt to fight for every promotion that is not the UFC – on his way down to, like, sport fight and whatever else comes after this, then sure. Like, I'm going to watch that. And and Bellator knows that. But at the same time, like, it seems like the writing on the wall for Fedor is such that you can't go out there and just think, like, all right, we're going to give him a few easy ones to prop him up and keep him around for a little while. Uh, that won't really work as well. Like, so you got to throw him in there against somebody else with a name, somebody like Matt Mitrione. I mean... You know it would not be out of the realm of possibility to see, like, a, a fedor Chelsonen fight uh, in Bellator. Like, stuff like that, where it is, like, the kind of fun that we hate ourselves for being so interested in. It is an interesting juxtaposition that we just spent around talking about Anderson Silva not really being Anderson Silva anymore, and how we're kind of okay with that. And then, uh, you know, we segue straight into this round about Fedor Emelianenko, who... You know, along with John Jones and maybe George St. Pierre is on that list of guys that you can debate whether or not they are the greatest mixed martial artist of all time. And in fact, uh, you know, you might be able to make the argument just depending on the conversation that you're having, just for the ease of, of, uh, uh, having malleable facts to make your point. But it seems like a whole lot less fun to me for some reason to have Fedor out there not being uh, himself anymore. And maybe it's just a matter of him indeed taking a tremendous beating against Fabio Maldonado in his last time out. I just feel like, uh, it's not as fun <laughs> watching Fedor go out there as it is watching Anderson Silva, even though at this point, if anything, we got conclusive evidence that Anderson Silva will disappoint us, uh, in his fight against Derek Brunson last weekend. Well, I think maybe part of the reason why it feels different is, that you feel like you already had the funeral for Fedor in his MMA career. True. You yeah. feel like you made your peace with that, like in 2011. And then he, he comes back and he's fighting some more and you're like, okay, well, fine. He he wants to go do some weird stuff in Japan or uh, give a, a show for the Russian fans. Fine, whatever. He can do whatever. And then he shows back up in Bellator and you're like, okay, so we're really doing this, huh? Like this is really just continuing. This is just steamrolling forward into whatever calamity awaits. Okay. And that, I think, it, it feels like, all right, we were we were just screwing around and having fun, and now it's getting a little too serious. I think maybe that's the source of your unease. Yeah. I, and I don't know that I would feel the same way about it if after the fight he laughs and says he's too old to keep fighting. These guys out here are too strong and too fast for him, but his heart is in it, and so... He, or he keeps putting his heart into it because fighting is his life, which, frankly, sounds like the very thing Fedor Emelianenko will probably say after this fight is over. Just won't bring me as, as much mirth as when Anderson Silva said it. Are we going to wind up in one of those situations where the worst thing that could possibly happen to Fedor here is he wins? 
Which is not totally out of the question either, right? No, because Matt no. Mitrione is on this two-fight win streak in Bellator over Carl Semiumanatafa and Oli Thompson, which is a much easier name to say, but at the same time hasn't looked totally dominating at, at those Bellator events. In fact, I would describe Matt Mitrione as having a performance that looks like a guy who just left the UFC and now comes to Bellator not quite as, as uh, capable as he once was. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, again, at heavyweight, a couple... Guys in their late thirties fighting at heavyweight, anything could actually happen. But yes, me, I think Matt Matrion should go out there and win this fight. Like he he ought to be able to beat the Fedor of today. I wonder. I'm sure for a guy like Matt Mitrion, there's still like a feeling like, oh hey man, I might I could have a win over fucking Fedor. Yes, yeah, Fedor. I can put that pelt on my wall, and I won't even tell people that it was in 2017. Like I'll just I'll mumble that part when I tell the story 20 years from now. Uh. How much longer do you think that, that that holds out before the luster has gone so completely off the name? Well, it depends on how this one goes, man. If Mitrion goes out there and just pounds the shit out of Fedor and knocks him out in the first round, we're done as far as I'm concerned. Like, we don't need to keep dragging Fedor out here to do this. Uh, you know, I, we, like you said, Chael Sonnen... Uh, was a guy Bellator specifically mentioned as a future fight for Fedor Emelianenko when they signed uh, Chael Sonnen last year. I guess you start bringing him out there against smaller and smaller guys. Vanderlei until, Silva until and you Fedor. Find, oh, God. Woodwatch. <laughs> I know. I Woodwatch. know. It's terrible. Yeah. Oh, God. All right. Well, uh, anything else you want to say about Fedor and uh, Mitrione here? Or are we just I just hope talking everybody's ourselves okay. deeper and deeper into a hole? I just hope nobody gets seriously injured. Okay, can we can we all just agree on that? Like, all right, we want to go out here, have a couple guy heavyweights in their late thirties, uh, throw cannonballs at each other's heads, and and see who can hold up. Let, let's just hope everybody gets to go home safe at the end of the night. Bellator one seventy two. I just hope everybody is okay. <laughs> all right, let's do just saying stuff, and uh, then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. This week, my just saying stuff concerns the departure of uh, Ryan Bader from the UFC to Bellator. Uh, now that it's, it's done and, and Ryan Bader is, has hitting the road over there to Bellator, uh, he's being a lot more forthcoming about the fallout of the Reebok deal and what that cost him from fight to fight during his last several appearances in the UFC. I'm just going to read this quote, which I believe he said to Submission Radio during a recent appearance. He said, one thing too, which is huge for me is being able to have our own sponsorships in the UFC before the sponsorship deal with Reebok. Uh, the least I ever made was $35,000 for a fight, uh, and I made up to $80,000 for a fight. That's a huge amount per fight to be cut. Uh, I mean, yes, we do get paid on tenure, and I was one of the highest tenured guys, and we all know how that works with Reebok, but it's a huge thing to be able to represent your sponsors again. Uh, so I guess this week I'm just saying two things. Number one, I guess I'm just saying I hope that that sponsorship market for Ryan Bader and Bellator turns out to be uh, as lucrative as he thinks it might be. And I'm also just saying that... Man, remember when the UFC said it was going to figure out a way to make this Reebok deal work for everybody? That was a while ago. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I don't know if you know this, but Cody Garbrandt, the UFC bantamweight champion, and he of the many tattoos already, got himself a new tattoo. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess... You know, recently I did a story about the, this guy in England, Ross Baines, who is an artist and does a lot of, like, paintings of fighters and does, like, kind of custom uh, paintings for people. 
of MMA stuff and sports stuff and all kinds of stuff. And one of the things he was telling me was that the hard, one of the hardest things to get down is the UFC belt because there's so many details and intricacies in it that to really capture it and make it look the way it looks is really difficult for an artist. And I'm just saying, whoever did Cody Garbrandt's tattoo just decided not to try that. Okay, one with a simplified version? Yeah, the version that just does not really look like the thing. It's not a great tattoo. Okay, nice. Well, uh, also, I'm I guess just, I'm just saying I'm not surprised to hear that. I'm just saying it, there's a hand grenade as part of it. It says, a promise kept, and it has like the belt kind of wrapped around a hand grenade. Uh, I, I, without looking, I'm just saying this can't be the first hand grenade on Cody Garbrandt's body. He must have another hand grenade on him somewhere, if right? If there's not a hand grenade on the back of his hands, I'd be surprised, right? That's where you get him if you're a fighter. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, join us next week. We'll talk about all the stuff that happens at these two events, both Bellator 172 and the UFC in Halifax, Nova Scotia. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So Fedor goes out there, uh-huh. knocks out Matt Mitrione. Right. One punch style, making him look like Andre Arlovsky back in the day. Eyes all open and shit. Jumps on the mic, announces he's back. I'm back, guys. I'm back. And I'm coming for that Bellator heavyweight title.